Friday, March 25th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Jeanette Wolfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Joe Biden and Western allies pledge new sanctions on Russia and aid to Ukraine. The decision to accept refugees into this country is a good decision. I think the vast majority of Americans support that decision. Tension on the Korean Peninsula as North Korea launches an intercontinental ballistic missile. North Korea likely launched the ICBM that analysts refer to as the monster missile, which has moved on land by a massive 22-wheeled mobile launcher. And the WHO calls for increased funding to fight tuberculosis as the world marks TB Day. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. President Joe Biden and Western allies pledged new sanctions on Russia and aid to Ukraine on Thursday in response to Vladimir Putin's invasion. But the vow fell short of the more robust military assistance that President Vladimir Zelensky pleaded for in a pair of live video appearances. Separately, the White House announced the U.S. would welcome 100,000 Ukrainian refugees and provide an additional $1 billion in food, medicine, water, and other supplies. Washington also expanded its sanctions on Russia, targeting members of the country's parliament along with defense contractors. For more, I spoke with Robert Oterng, Research Professor of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Well, I think the decision to accept refugees into this country is a good decision. I think the vast majority of Americans support that decision. A recent poll showed two-thirds of the citizens support it. So I think that is in, in line with our past, being a country of refugees. And clearly, given the number of refugees, several million already flowing into Western Europe, there's not enough room there for all of them. And so we should definitely share the burden with our European allies and taking some of the refugees here in this country. I think they'll find a welcome support when they get here. Some analysts are also saying that the polls indicate that more Americans want the president to do more for Ukraine. What more can he do? Accepting the refugees is part of it. Also, today they announced a whole lot of new sanctions on Russian politicians and, and the Russian economy. That's important. Of course, that's going to be over the long term. I think providing effective new weapons to the Ukrainian military is going to be very important. I think we're providing anti-ship weapons, which will be crucial for defending the coast and some of the major cities like Odessa. So there's a lot more that can be done. And I think Biden is doing a good job in, in making sure that this happens. Russia keeps hinting of possibly using nuclear weapons even the U.S. reports indicate is already setting up some kind of a committee to look into this and what the U.S. can do as a countermeasure. Do you get a sense that this war, if it continues, might lead to something greater than just Ukraine? Yes, I think that danger is present in the current conflict and we need to be very careful about how we proceed. But clearly we need, and Biden's doing a good job again, signaling to Russia that if they cross into NATO territory, the U.S. will use its full military might to defend the NATO frontline states. And they've made very clear that if Russia escalates to chemical weapons, biological weapons, or nuclear weapons, that the United States would respond. It's obviously it's not clear how we would respond. At this point, Russia feels like it can gain some advantage from threatening to use these weapons, and we need to make it crystal clear to them that there would be severe consequences if they did use those weapons. So hopefully we can prevent the use of those weapons, but then if they do use them, we'll have to respond accordingly. There's still some disagreement among 
European nations as to what to do about Russian oil. Some of them are saying they are not totally going to cut off from Russian oil. Does this undermine the unity of purpose of these European countries in trying to sanction Russia? Yes, ideally, it would be great to cut off Russian oil's financial supports for this war. Practically, that would be very hard to do for the Europeans since they get such a large percent, like 25% of their oil from Russia today. So I think putting in place plans to, as quickly as possible, reduce European energy dependence on Russian oil and natural gas is the right thing to do. And then we need to be thinking, though, this crisis is an opportunity to make a transition to cleaner sources of energy, not just new suppliers of fossil fuels. So the European Union and U.S. and other allies need to figure out ways that we can radically increase the supply of renewable energies so we're no longer dependent on dictators like Vladimir Putin and the others that sell us oil and That's Robert Otang, Research Professor of International Affairs at the George Washington University, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. What is front and center for President Biden in his talks with European partners in Brussels? Gustave Grussel, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations, tells VOS Carol Van Dam the most important track right now is the military one and how best the U.S. and NATO can support Ukrainian troops. A lot of NATO's eastern flank partners are in a good position to deliver because they have in their inventory ammunition and military equipment that the Ukrainians can use right on the spot. They don't need extra training on that. But of course, on the medium term, sort of this is a short-term solution. On the medium term, one needs to equip them also with stuff that is more sustainable, especially in air defense. I mean, we have few, very few operators of S-300 and book systems, and the Ukrainians need more ammunition. We'll get them some, but... Uh, at a certain point, they need a different system that we can supply more freely. Is there pushback from the European leaders on Biden to relax his stand on American air equipment? Do they want him to send F-16 fighters and saying, well, don't worry about training them. We'll take care of that. Is there anything like that going on? Well, the problem is that would be sort of F-16s would be the most complicated system to give them. It needs extensive training. Talking actually a lot about space-to-air missiles and bigger ones than Stinges and Eagles and Grons. So there are more export-oriented systems that are easier to train on than more complex ones. So so there are solutions. And the other thing, I mean, everybody talks about the air situation, but the other thing is sort of ground forces, uh, main battle tanks, uh, armored infantry fighting vehicles, artillery, artillery ammunition. Uh, the Ukrainians need to recreate and replenish their, their mechanized reserves. Otherwise, they can't continue this kind of mobile defense. And that is, uh, of course, it's, it will create vacuums in, in Poland or Romania who have, for example, these systems in large quantities because they're using them themselves. And, and there will be an issue sort of oh, which European ally, ally and to what extent uh, Americans and Canadians can deploy forces to these countries when they empty their storages and, and give the Ukrainian stuff that they're, they're using themselves. Then, of course, there's the sanctions issue, um, how to tighten the screws on the Russian economy in order to sort of drain uh, the financial sector uh, basically drain the war economy and, and make, make Russia crash land harder than, than, than we're doing this right now. And in between kind of talking about all sorts of constituencies that may or may not happen. What What is about chemical weapons? Russia might still use them to kind of, especially in the mainland Syria, you know, blame the Ukrainians for, for using them while using them instead of deploying them. That's Gustav Gressel, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam from Berlin, Germany. 
The United States have vowed that members of the Russian military who have committed war crimes in Ukraine will be held accountable and brought to justice. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sane reports. U.S. Ambassador Beth Van Schack is focused on global criminal justice. She was confirmed by the Senate last week and had an important announcement to make on her second day on the job. She said a careful review has now taken place. Secretary Blinken issued a statement announcing that based on information that is currently available, the U.S. government assesses that Russia's forces are committing war crimes in Ukraine. Van Schack said the U.S. and its partners have been shocked by images of Russian forces and airstrikes hitting civilian sites in Mariupol, including the maternity hospital, a museum, and an art school. Reporters asked her if the war crimes assessment also applies to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And as you mentioned, there is a chain of command when it comes to a military like the Russian military. And the doctrinally, we're able to hold responsible under international law those who are directly responsible, those who might be complicit or otherwise engaged in some sort of a joint criminal enterprise with the perpetrators. Despite video showing Ukrainian hospitals and public facilities being bombed, Russia has denied that it deliberately targeted civilians. U.S. officials say accountability will ultimately depend on the judgment of a court that has jurisdiction. Speaking at the United States Institute of Peace, Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markorova, remembered the first Nazi concentration camp created in March 1933 near Munich. And unfortunately today the history repeats itself. And today again in the center of Europe, now in Ukraine, we are talking about atrocities, about genocide, about war crimes and crimes against humanity. An expert in international law, Jane Stromseth, said the International Criminal Court has started an investigation in Ukraine. As the ambassador mentioned, the ICC prosecutor has uh, started an investigation, sent a team of investigators to Ukraine, has himself personally been to Ukraine, spoken with Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky. President Joe Biden is likely to discuss Russian war crimes in Ukraine with NATO partners and others in Brussels. Estonia, Lithuania, Germany, Poland, Slovakia, and Sweden are all investigating potential war crimes in Ukraine, seeking to preserve evidence for future accountability. Cindy Sane, VOA News. Madeleine Albright, the first female U.S. Secretary of State, died Wednesday at the age of 84. She leaves a legacy that shaped American foreign policy and served as an inspiration for many. VOA Salem Solomon takes a look at her extraordinary life and career. When Madeleine Albright was nominated by President Bill Clinton to serve as America's top diplomat in 1996, she became the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. In her four years in the position, she led a U.S. response to the war in the Balkans and faced a nuclear-armed North Korea and rising extremism in the Middle East. She died Wednesday surrounded by her family after a battle with cancer. Tributes poured in from around the world for the woman known simply as Madam Secretary. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., says Albright inspired many. She was a trailblazer and a luminary, and she was the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. She left an indelible mark on the world and on the United Nations. Our country and our United Nations 
are stronger for her service. Albright's life was shaped by the worst of humanity. Born in Prague, Czechoslovakia in 1937, her family fled after the Nazis occupied the country in 1939. She later discovered that she'd lost three grandparents to the Holocaust. Albright sharing her family's history in her own words. They uh, got my grandmother to bring me uh, into Prague and everybody just had one suitcase and they got on a train to get out and as she said that was the last time they ever saw um, any members of their family. Albright's family came to the United States as refugees. They settled in Denver, Colorado where her father became dean of the School of International Relations at the University of Denver. A star student, Albright went on to study at Wellesley College before moving on to graduate school at Columbia University, where she met Zygmunt Brzezinski, who became national security advisor under President Jimmy Carter and brought Albright to work in the White House. Under Clinton, she served first as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations before becoming secretary of state. Albright said perhaps her greatest challenge during this time was the war in Kosovo, which threatened to engulf the entire region in 1998. For the Balkans, this escalating violence is the road back to hell. Unless stopped, tensions will flow out of control. The results could be a full-fledged civil war, putting at risk the peace in Bosnia and spreading conflict like an infectious disease to neighboring states. A NATO military campaign that drove out occupying Serbian forces led to a peace that holds to this day. Albright said she saw the moment as a success professionally. What I'm really proudest of is what we did in Kosovo. Um, I was very concerned about what was happening uh, in the Balkans and I really found it very difficult to watch when people were being killed. for what they were, what religion they were, rather than anything that they had done. And to be in a position to have something to do with the United States making a difference there um, is what I think was very, very important. And the people of Kosovo, now it's an independent country, and there's a whole generation of little girls whose first name is Madeline. Her diplomacy took her around the world seeing the AIDS crisis in Africa and meeting face-to-face with Kim Jong-il in North Korea. President Joe Biden remembered her as a tireless fighter for refugees fleeing danger and for American values. Salim Solomon, VOA News, Washington. In other news, hundreds of people in rain gear and rubber boots are searching muddy forested hills in southern China for the second flight recorder from a jetliner that crashed with 133 people aboard. No survivors have been found since the China Eastern Airline Boeing 737-800 dived into a mountainous area Monday, but authorities say they're still looking. Officials say human remains and engine parts were found, as well as items from the cockpit and some belonging to passengers. One of the two black box recorders believed to be cockpit voice recorder was found Wednesday. China Eastern, one of China's four major airlines, said 223 Boeing 737-800 aircraft have been grounded while possible safety hazards are investigated. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chine Duafo in Washington. Tension is high on the Korean Peninsula as North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile Thursday, its first long-range launch since 2017. 
VOA's Bill Gallo reports from Seoul. North Korea likely launched the ICBM that analysts refer to as the Monster Missile, which is moved on land by a massive 22-wheeled mobile launcher. Japanese officials say it flew for over 70 minutes, splashing down just off the coast of northern Japan. Matsumoto Kuchiro, with the Japanese Prime Minister's office, spoke to VOA hours after the launch. This is an intolerable outrage, and uh, we condemn this uh, launch in the strongest terms. My Prime Minister is going to uh, attend the G7 summit uh, later today. And he will also address this issue in front of the uh, G7 colleagues of his. In response, South Korea's military fired five of its own missiles, what it called a demonstration of our ability and willingness to respond immediately and impose punishment. North Korea's most recent previous ICBM test was in 2017, during the height of tensions with the United States. Around that time, U.S. President Donald Trump threatened to totally destroy North Korea. But current U.S. President Joe Biden is likely to respond in a more measured way, says analyst Ramon Pacheco Pardo. We know the U.S. is not going to threaten a strike on, on, on North Korea. So, so in a sense, that, that will help significantly, of course, right? The, the, that no one thinks that this is going to, to, to lead uh, to war like some people thought may have happened in, in 2017. South Korea will also soon see a change in its president. Former prosecutor Yoon Suk-yeol, who takes office in May, says he's open to talks with North Korea. But that now may be more difficult for the conservative administration. They're carefully going to think what is the purpose of engagement under which circumstances they will engage with North Korea. And I think this will make it even less likely that at least a priori they will be willing to hold talks with North Korea. For now, the only party that doesn't seem interested in talking is North Korea. So far this year, North Korea has conducted 12 rounds of launches. According to a recent U.S. intelligence report, the North could also soon conduct a nuclear test. Bill Gallo, VOA News, Seoul, South Korea. In marking World TB Day, the World Health Organization is calling for increased funding to fight tuberculosis, a preventable, curable disease which kills and sickens millions of people every year. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The World Health Organization warns the fight against tuberculosis is at a critical juncture. It says the COVID-19 pandemic has reversed gains made since 2000 in saving lives from the infectious disease. For the first time in over a decade, the WHO says TB deaths increased in 2020. It says around one and a half million people died of TB during that pandemic year because of disruptions in services and lack of resources. Most deaths have occurred in developing countries with conflict-affected countries across Eastern Europe, Africa, and the Middle East at greatest risk. The director of the WHO's Global Tuberculosis Program, Teresa Kaseva, says an extra $1.1 billion a year is needed for the development of new tools, especially new vaccines, to achieve the goal of ending TB by 2030. She says investing in the fight against tuberculosis is a no-brainer, given the benefits gained for each dollar spent. For every one dollar invested to end TB, 43 is returned as the benefits of a healthier functioning society. Ending TB by 2030 
can lead to avoiding 23.8 million tuberculosis deaths and almost 13 trillion U.S. dollars in economic losses. The WHO says extra funding would allow the world to treat 50 million people with TB, including 3.7 million children and 2.2 million with drug-resistant TB. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. NASA says international space cooperation, quote, hasn't missed a beat, unquote, despite Russia's war on Ukraine and punishing Western sanctions on Moscow. Meanwhile, European Space Agency has cancelled travel plans with Russia while astronauts perform repairs on International Space Station. Arash Rabasadi brings us the week in space. Earlier this week, a rocket carrying a Soyuz capsule and three cosmonauts launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. The voyage came amid Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine and Western sanctions against Russian officials and banks. About three hours after launch, the Soyuz capsule docked with the ISS, where the entire crew greeted their new colleagues. The three cosmonauts became the first new arrivals since Russia invaded Ukraine last month. They appeared wearing flight suits in yellow and blue colors, the same as Ukraine's flag. It was clear if they intended to send a message, but cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev said every crew chooses its own flight suits, and they had a lot of yellow material, so they needed to use it. In other news, the world's most powerful rocket will soon get a dress rehearsal. NASA plans for the Space Launch System, or SLS, rocket to one day carry the Orion spacecraft in uncrewed orbit around the moon as the first stage of its Artemis program. NASA will test all systems short of actually launching, and if all goes according to plan, Artemis 1, the mission orbiting the moon, could come as early as June, according to Spacenews.com. The Artemis program aims to place the first woman and next man on the lunar surface. Finally this week, despite NASA's continued cooperation with the Russian space program, the European Space Agency confirmed indefinite suspension of its collaboration with Russia to send a rover to Mars. The ESA said in a statement, We deeply deplore the human casualties and tragic consequences of the aggression towards Ukraine. Earth-Mars orbital alignment only allows a trip to the Red Planet every two years, putting the next possible launch in 2024. The pandemic closed the previous window in 2020. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. This is Science in a Minute. Astronomers studying data gathered by Australia's ASCAP radio telescope in 2019 discovered what they described as a new class of circular radio objects. They are now called odd radio circles or orcs. Scientists describe orcs as very weird ghostly circles of radio emission that resemble a smoke ring. Scientists using the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory's Meerkat Radio Telescope say they have captured a detailed image of an orc. According to an observatory press release, it's thought that they could be a leftover from a huge explosion at the center of their host galaxy, powerful jets of energetic particles pouring out of the galaxy's center, or are the product of a starburst termination shock from the creation of stars in the galaxy. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Coming up, a conversation with Lauren Speranza, an analyst at the Center for European Policy Analysis. She will analyze the results of meetings among NATO and G7 allies in Brussels and their efforts to widen sanctions and coordinate defensive and humanitarian activities to thwart Russia's unprovoked aggression in Ukraine. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. 
beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. I'm Carol Castiel. Next up, the status of the conflict in Yemen. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominates headlines, the war in Yemen rages into its eighth year. Two analysts examine why peace talks continue to stall, the roles of Iran and Saudi Arabia in broadening the conflict, and the possibility of a truce during the holy month of Ramadan. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i'm chinadoff in washington wishing you a wonderful weekend